Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the podcast, Why Are Asian Americans Being Attacked and Beaten in Cities Across the United States? Susan Song of George Washington University Medical Center, who writes a blog on NBC called Think, wrote recently, a year ago, some people might have been shocked to think that elders, women, and one in four young adults in the Asian American Pacific Island community would become targets of hateful violence. Has Asian racism become acceptable, if not actually popular? For a discussion, clarity, and context on this, we turn to Dr. Nicholas Hartlepp, the Robert Charles Billings Chair in Education at Berea College. Dr. Hartlett is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and is available to speak to your group, your church, uh, your gathering, uh, either virtually right now or if you are beginning to open up uh, a bit and he is willing, uh, maybe even in person pretty soon. Uh, One of his talks uh, for the Speakers Bureau at Kentucky Humanities is titled The Assault on Communities of Color, Race-Based Violence in the Era of the New Jim Crow. Dr. Hartlip, it's it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Bill. Why are we seeing so many uh, assaults on the Asian community here in the United States? Well, a lot of people have mentioned it, and I'll do the same. Um, The former president didn't help um, with the pandemic, calling it the China virus. Um, But I would argue that even without Donald Trump um, sharing his sentiment of um, xenophobia, it was always lurking because um, time has shown that the love for Asian Americans um, it's like a pendulum. It swings between the model minority, which is actually racist love, and kind of a yellow peril, which is an overt um, animosity and hatred. So it, Donald Trump did not help, but I, I would say that uh, anti-Asian sentiment has always been lurking. In your experience, uh, but presently, uh, I, I've tried to Uh, look at the news and read uh, about the attackers as well as those who have been attacked. And it seems like it's been across the board. We know just uh, as we're taping this uh, at the very end of March, 1st of April, that just this week, uh, there was a a man who's been uh, accused. Thank goodness they they found him. But he had been, uh, if I remember correctly, sentenced to uh, a life parole sentence for killing his mother. Now, um, I don't know if if the color of other uh, of the attackers matters, but I also do know that some have been white. Some have been people of color. Uh, What can you tell us about the mind of the attacker and 
how pervasive that is across uh, all people. Yeah, well, first off, you know, when we think about assaults on um, communities of color, Asian Americans are part of that. Um, Some people would like you to believe that Asian Americans are not people of color. Um, So, and and being of color, being a person of color is different than being indigenous. So indigeneity, you know, Native Americans also experience um, violence <clears throat> towards their communities. I would, I would put them together under this umbrella. Um, in terms of the attacks and um, the backgrounds of these assailants, um, one thing that's very interesting is um, the intersection between stereotypes. So I mentioned that Um, It's like a pendulum between a model minority and a yellow peril. Well, interwoven within those is um, stereotypes of Asian women. So when you think about um, the Georgia incident um, murder there, um, you have a a gentleman who who talks about um, kind of like exotic fantasies of um, women. And so we can't um, underestimate that. Meanwhile, you have men, Asian American men, who are stereotyped um, in ways that um, emasculate them, that they aren't really real men, so to speak. And so you have this kind of, this kind of um, dance between hyper and hypo. You have this hypersexualization of women and this hypo, um, you know, effeminacy of men. And as an Asian American man, as a Korean man, I've certainly been a victim of that. Um, Violence, no, I have not been violently attacked. But we also have to understand that um, death, uh, you should not have to be killed, but then also words, words words are harmful too. Um, I I tell stories of how young white boys um, in my former community where I live as I was entering a YMCA to work out with my family, would call me chink and ask me under the breath, where are you from? And when confronted, they kind of laughed and um, tried to dismiss it. In those incidences, personally, I wonder where, where did they get that socialization that it was okay to ask any person, yet, um, yet alone an uh, older person um, in such a kind of hostile way. Well, I would argue the news media, their parents, school. And so um, going back to your original question, Bill, um, the backgrounds, um, I'm not a criminologist. I don't know what they're thinking, but you do have these cases of um, people who have these stereotypes of women. And um, misogyny for sure is a problem in this country. But Dr. Hardlip, I would also, observe that there's, uh, I believe, uh, maybe not underlying, but uh, what we see, there's a, there's a vast difference in what happened in uh, Atlanta at the massage parlor, uh, parlor murders and what has happened on the streets of Chicago and New York and in the larger cities uh, when elderly uh, men and women of, of, of Asian uh, descent have been have been brutally uh, attacked and and beaten. So, uh, what is there a um, what what's the thinking there? I think it's it's somewhat confusing. 
Yeah, you, uh, I guess, Bill, you're, you're referring to just um, comparing and contrasting the who's, who's targeted and not. Yeah, it, it, it always is complex. I mean, I guess we don't know necessarily until we talk with these people what, what transpired in the circumstances, what, um, you know, was it a crime of opportunity or um, what, what, what caused it, what triggered the event? One thing I might say though, is when we talk about violence and we are thinking about, um, and you hear the term black on white violence or black on brown or what have you, we have to pause a moment and really understand why are we using that? What is the limitation of, of that language? And also um, looking at the statistics. So it's, interrelated to um, the hesitancy of calling something a hate crime. You know, um, I would say that the, the Georgia um, murders were a hate crime. And, you know, I understand um, the patience that needs to go into the investigation, but when so many victims are of one ethno-racial group, um, it begs the question why we can't um, call it a hate crime. And so um, many scholars, many pundits um, have critiqued the whole notion of black on white violence. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's highly problematic to kind of use that language. So I, I avoid doing so. Dr. Hartlip, um, although we're in the moment with uh, so many of these incidences, what, what does your scholarship tell you uh, about how far back uh, in in the United States, um, does it uh, emanate? Are we talking about, uh, uh, for example, uh, in the uh, in the 1900s, uh, le leading up to uh, uh, World War II? Uh, what 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 was occurring there that uh, might have, in some way, uh, lent uh, some uh, some study, some uh, that were were just to talk about the period that we're, we're, we're really sure. addressing. Yeah, so anti-Asian racism has been always with us. Um, when you think about um, internment camps for Japanese Americans and preceding that um, Chinese Exclusion Acts. Um, so we had policy in this country. <clears throat> and even really um, when you think about uh, the infrastructure, uh, the building of the country, the railroad system in which um, many Asians uh, helped build that infrastructure that really helped expand um, the country um, from coast to coast. Um, it was present there. Um, so again, even, even that many, many times, um, I was just reading a, a book, um, Cast, and the author talks about how we, we've had longer time with slavery and, and, and problematic racial um, relations than, than um, not. Um, we're a young country in that respect. And so the idea that racism is an illness is actually false. Um, our body politic has always had racism and um, colonization as part of its roots when we talk about dispelling indigenous Native American groups. So, um, I would say that um, that metaphor doesn't work. Um, 
And so um, your original question, um, it's, it's been from the beginning, <laughs> from the genesis of this country. If racism is not an illness, what is it? It is a, um, it's a system that um, this country was uh, used to, to its creation. It, it's its creation story. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about um, poverty and race, and that um, not all, but some people, um, you know, if you're white, um, you might be poor, but you can say, well, at least I'm not a person of color. And, and that's really highly problematic um, because um, I'm of the mindset that um, our, our current system doesn't work for, for the grand majority of pe people, white people, black people, um, all people. Um, and that's the problem. So I, I stand with my brothers and sisters. I, I would say, let's, let's rethink about this model. <laughs> There's a few people at the top and a lot of us on the bottom and the people at the top have us on the bottom fighting for one, fighting one another. And, and they use race as a wedge. There again, same with Asians. So if Asians are model minorities, um, they, they're, they're used kind of as a wedge to say, hey, look at you other communities. You need to do what the Asian group is doing. Um, and, and we know that, that, um, that's problematic and you see that in higher education. You see that, you know, when, when, um, if Asians are a quote unquote, getting into high schools, like, well, they got there because they worked hard. They're just hard workers. They put their nose to the grindstone. And we know that, um, there's issues of classism as well. So when we think about the Asian American community, we have to look at issues like class, um, education level, what, what subgroup of Asian Americans are we talking about? Their parental backgrounds, are they immigrants recently arrived? Um, have they been here for several generations? Um, things like that. Um, fascinating uh, explanation there. And, and I, you have two talks uh, in your Speakers Bureau presentations uh, for Kentucky Humanities. I want to talk about uh, one, and then we'll um, take a break and then revisit uh, the, the second one. Uh, but in the first one on race and diversity, um, you, just, you used a term, um, mo and you just said model minority, uh, model minority stereotype of Asian Americans. What, what, uh, explain that term to me. <clears throat> sure. So the model minority stereotype, I'm glad um, you asked because listeners um, might not have ever heard that term. It's, a, it's an academic term, <clears throat> excuse me, but the term really refers to, in the simplest sense, um, how Asian Americans are stereotyped here in the United States. And as I mentioned before, it, it, it could be of the brainy, nerdy scientist, um, the doctor, it could be... Um, you know, um, something quote unquote positive. Um, however, interwoven within that, as I mentioned, you have stereotypes of um, different genders um, and culture. So um, a few years back, now it actually might not be a few, a while ago, there was a book um, called The Tiger Mom, Battle Helm of the Tiger Mother. And um, Amy Chua wrote a book and kind of, talked about the parenting styles that she had. And so, you know, you have this mommy who, who 
is hard on her kids. You have to play the violin. Again, they're very reductionistic, simplified stereotypes. And um, as I mentioned before, you have to look at her background. Um, Amy Chua is a, a law professor at Yale and her, her husband is a Yale law professor. I can't imagine they're struggling financially and um, have a lot of um, education. And so thinking about how they raise their kids is not how all Chinese parents raise their children. So um, as I mentioned, the model minority stereotype, um, and it really has begun um, the, the building of it um, was in some way the strategy for Asian Americans for upward mobility, you know, because it's a delicate line, you know, you, you, you need to get the validation of the majority group. And so one way to do that is um, through a lot of schooling and doing well and um, being apolitical, like, right? Just keep your mouth closed and don't rock the boat. Um, that's highly problematic as we know. So there have been times when Asian Americans have, um, and I'll be honest, um, not done a good enough job of calling out anti-Black racism. And, um, but, but now you're seeing a lot of rallies. You're seeing a lot of, um, and, and there has been, there has been that solidarity, but, but at times, um, the model minority um, ha has allowed um, some Asian groups to kind of be quiet when they should not, they should be outspoken. In, in a very uh, perverse way, and this is even hard for me to uh, say, uh, ha have the attacks on Asian Americans <clears throat> and Pacific um, uh, Americans, uh, Pacific Island Americans, has it brought positive attention to the plight of uh, Asian American people in a way that people are understanding what the, the struggle and uh, not just the attacks, but uh, uh, the, 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 the brutal uh, way of treatment for hundreds of years? Yeah, good question. That's a great question. Um, the pessimist in me would say that um, this opportunity will slowly fade into the um, sunset. Um, and I guess I, I say that because when you think of <clears throat> some of these movements, whether they be race-based movements or class-based movements, um, the Me Too movement, um, they, they seem to dissipate. Um, the Black Lives Matter though, seems to be pers persisting in, 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 in good ways. Um, so, Yes, I think it's great that we're having this attention, but you know, I also wonder why now? Um, well, certainly because of the pandemic, it's timely. But I was thinking about uh, Dr. Seuss, he's been in the news, the Theodore Giesel for the, the books and how some of um, his books were um, problematic on many levels and how the publisher has kind of disbanded that. And, and I thought, well, folks who teach and have read and historians know about this history. Why was it, you know, I don't know what date it was, but 2021 that that happened. And so um, I'm, I like that Asian Americans um, were getting platforms. Today's a good example. Would I have been invited for this talk? Maybe not. But um, I do hope that um, the movement continues because, again, even though we are talking about this, this has been a problem for a long, long time. Dr. Nicholas Hartlip is the Robert Charles Billings Chair in Education at Berea College. Uh, 
and we will continue our conversation with him with uh, some other questions and uh, and comments right after we hear from our uh, underwriter for this uh, podcast, Spalding University. Spalding University's affordable, nationally distinguished low residency MFA in writing offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration, explore across genres, and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Dr. Hartlip, uh, in your um, in your scholarship, uh, in your study, uh, but in your professorship at, at Berea, um, how do the uh, now I'm going to um, uh, this is stereotypical of me uh, of a question. So uh, feel free to fire back if you if you must. Now, I know. Uh, I know Berea well. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, college. It's a wonderful representation of uh, of the world, and and uh, but it's a microcosm of uh, of what maybe more of us uh, should believe Kentucky should should be like. And um, so I know there are uh, minority students uh, of ethnicity in your in your classes and on campus, but uh, the 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 greater number are are uh, kids, young people. Uh, who are maybe in many cases first generation uh, college uh, attendees? What what are your um, what kind of dialogue do you have with your with your kids uh, about this subject? Uh, are what what kind of curiosity do they bring to the classroom? Yeah, um, thanks for asking that. Um, the the students that I work with um, who want to become teachers um, are wonderful here at Berea. They, they are very aware of their own belief system and they try to um, question it um, and, you know, pursue new knowledges and new understandings. Um, <clears throat> for instance, we had a colleague in the department who uh, invited a, um, a teacher who was in the news media, uh, a white woman, um, elementary teacher, who um, kind of was chided for teaching a lesson about Black Lives Matter um, in her young um, elementary classroom. And it was a really interesting dialogue. We Zoomed her in and um, the students uh, heard her side of the story and um, were able to ask her questions. And in that case, I think that from a racial perspective and a gender perspective, the, the students could think about themselves if they were in that situation as a white female student uh, or white female elementary teacher. Um, so the students that I get to work with at Berea College are very inquisitive and um, very great at what they do. Um, just did an observation with a teacher um, in an outlying uh, school and you know, she, here she's like a year out and in the pandemic. 
and was just a rock star teacher. And, and so um, you're right. I think that certainly Berea College is um, kind of a bubble because when you get outside of it here in the Commonwealth, um, not everyone would see eye to eye with um, Berea College and how it operates, but its history is wonderful. The first um, co-educational interracial college of the South um, and what it's done with it with the endowment to fund kids, as you mentioned, first generation from Appalachia, um, giving them opportunities. And many of our students go on to do graduate school at um, Harvard, Vanderbilt, um, Michigan. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed to be there. How long have you been at Berea? Um, two years, coming up on two years, <clears throat> although it feels like only a few months because my first semester I came late and I um, wasn't able to teach a course when the pandemic hit. Um, in fact, my colleague um, and I were in um, New Orleans and uh, during when it when the president announced that uh, everyone had to go home. Um, so we rushed home and at that moment in time, we didn't know what was going on. Um, and I still kind of don't, it, it's a time warp. I don't know about you, Bill, but for me, it's been a time warp. I don't even know what day it is today. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, it's, uh, it's April Fool's Day. Uh, oh as my, we're, you're right. Oh. As we're taping this. Uh, so uh, that doesn't have anything to do with, with who you are and who I am. And uh, this is all legitimate. Uh, we'll, we'll tell folks. Uh, of course, this won't, uh, won't be airing today. Um, Nicholas, um, although you haven't really, uh, it's, it's not, this may not be a fair question because you, you've been here such a short period of time and it's, uh, we, we have gone through this time warp and we're still in it to a degree. Um, have you, you've not had any opportunity, of course, to, to travel uh, Kentucky and to, to get really outside of the bubble, as you said, uh, correct? Yeah, I live in Lexington. And, and you're right, um, we've definitely limited um, travel. Um, I've got my vaccination now, so I feel a little more comfortable, obviously still masking and social distancing. Um, in terms of Kentucky, I've seen a little bit of Western Kentucky uh, through the comfort of my van. And um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful state, bluegrass state. Um, and I never would have thought I, I would live in, in Kentucky, but here we are and my family seems to really like it. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, just just sort of uh, what brought you here, what attracted you to Berea um, and uh, uh, what what questions do you have? What do you want to explore? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it's kind of interesting. I was doing research on work colleges, so listeners might not know that Berea College is a federal designated work college, which simply means, right, they they use the um, federal labor program and and in the college um, to help um, fund the educations of its students. So all the students work on campus. And um, so I was doing research on it and actually um, had a book contract. I still have the book contract. I have to finish the book. Um, I, that was going to be my sabbatical project um, at my former institution. I was at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, I saw the ad um, on the HR website. And so it was curious. And then I looked into part of the research. I said, uh, oh my goodness, this, this history um, aligns a lot with my personal beliefs and my values. And um, 
here in my family, we encourage our children to dream big and to not have regrets. So we kind of had a, a meeting. I told my wife, I said, hey, um, I think I want to try to apply and I probably won't get an interview. <laughs> and that was wrong. I got an interview and it kind of really accelerated there and was offered the position. And that was that was a tough moment because um, we had to think about uprooting our kids and um, you know, you have school, you have friends, you have athletics, extracurriculars. Um, but again, I would have regrets if I, if I didn't come. Um, the people, the employees, the faculty, the staff, the students are amazing. Um, and I say it not just to help the brand, but it's true. Berea College is a very prestigious school. And so it's, it's kind of like this um, um, interesting case because you're having folks who have some of the least and you're giving them the most and they're leaving uplifted. Yeah. They're leaving with a degree, they're leaving with a network and, and hopefully they go out and they, they change the world. Yeah, that's so, that's so well said. And I'm not telling you anything, but maybe our, our listeners, uh, we're always still learning about uh, the Commonwealth and its history, uh, that Berea is not the only work college in Kentucky. Yes, you're right. Alice Lloyd. Alice Lloyd is a work college as well. Absolutely. And I'm going to ask if you visited there and, and if you have that on your uh, triptych. It is. It's on my list. Um, it was a good colleague, Robin Taffler, is going to take me over there. Um, so I'm, I'm gearing up. I'm ready. Well, it's a, um, it's a beautiful uh, part of uh, Kentucky. Um, uh, it, it's very much in contrast to uh, the bluegrass. And uh, uh, there has been, as you know, a controversy over mountaintop removal, and, and rightly so. Uh, but still, even with that um, and the reclamation and uh, the beauty of, of the mountains. And Alice Lloyd is... Um, what an incredible story uh, that is. I mean, very much like Berea's, everybody's got a story, everybody has a history, and, and Alice Lloyd herself um, and uh, the people that uh, she was with early on. And the, the school, quite honestly, reminds me uh, very much uh, of, of Berea in that it's, it's small, uh, it's, it's very I don't know. You, you would say, and I would have to admit that it's when I say closed in, it, it is surrounded by mountains. Uh, uh, and you, you uh, but but what a what a wonderful group of kids uh, and what they've done there is just uh, another miracle. Uh, just like just like Berea, there, there's so much opportunity for for kids. And you know, Doctor, we, we're got, we've got to wrap up here, but that's. That to me is the perplexing part about life today is that uh, uh, th there are opportunities uh, in, in schools, uh, whether or not it's higher education, but then in higher education. And, and still today we're faced with so much hate and, and, and so much uh, vitriol um, that it just, uh, I, I, I'm not smart enough to figure it out and to, to, to understand it. And that's why you are in a position to do that. Do you have any comment on just how, how we could be fostering such uh, opportunities for, for young people, even if they've had a rough upbringing and yet we continue to have so much, um, so much hate in, in our country? Absolutely. Um, a lot of it gets down to philosophical orientations because, you know, when you think about 
speech. Um, hate speech isn't protected speech. And, and some people kind of fail to, to understand that. So um, I know making the comparison is not um, appropriate, but I, I think of my, my daughters just, just yesterday, how they had a, a sibling fight. And um, when I bring them together, what, what happened? There's two sides, there's multiple sides because <laughs> there were some observers. Uh, and um, when, it, when it boils down to it, you know, one daughter never has the right to hit another sibling, you know? And so it's, it's kind of like this philosophical where, when as, as higher ed institutions or as a society, do we intervene and say, look, that's off limits. You can't throw those words around. You can't um, um, behave in this way. That's not civil discourse. And then others would like you to believe it's a free country, we can do whatever we want. And I think that deterioration, that breakdown really did come um, under the um, Trump presidency, um, a degradation of, of standards, of, of precedence, of historical um, ways of, of operating, the modus operandi and uh, of that highest office. Um, and, and that's not a partisan thing because um, when you hear democratic governors doing um, problematic things, um, they need to be held to account as well. And um, so I, I see that it's very challenging. It's been with us, Bill, I would agree. I'm, I'm not even, I'm not smart enough myself to get it, but together, hopefully um, we, can, we can make progress um, on that front. Dr. Nicholas uh, Hartlip is a member of our Speakers Bureau uh, for Kentucky Humanities. Uh, if you go to our website uh, and uh, pull down under our programs tab, Speakers Bureau, uh, scroll down to the speakers roster. Not only will you find uh, just a terrific, outstanding group of, uh, of men and women and uh, who are available to speak to your church group, your uh, civic club, your organization uh, on uh, topics that range from beekeeping to history uh, to writing uh, to, uh, as we have finished up today, uh, Dr. Hartlett has uh, several uh, topics uh, that he talks uh, about uh, that we didn't get to uh, discuss today, but uh, uh, they're there for you to read and, and digest and then uh, ask him to come and speak to your group. We're, we're glad you're a Kentuckian now and uh, a, a proud member of the Berea College faculty. Dr. Hartlip, uh, thanks so much for joining us today on Think Humanities. My honor. Thank you, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.